Professors FM. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome, everyone. This is Mike Lewis and Doug Battle with the uh, Fanalytics uh, podcast. We are doing the, uh, well, well, Doug, what are we going to call this? The Tuesday morning recap look ahead? Um, that might be a wordy title. <laughs> yeah. I think we need to work on that. Uh, it's sort of a, our, our weekly edition to give you a little bit of a deeper insight or a deeper dive into some of the more important or high profile going ons of sports. Yeah, essentially what we're trying to do is apply how Mike looks at things to current events in sports and what's going on right now. And this last week was somewhat eventful for a week with no sports. Um, We've got a big time high school prospect declaring for the G League, which may set a precedent for big time high school basketball players moving forward. And there will be some implications of that on the NCAA potentially. And, um, you know, the last dance premiered last night. I enjoyed watching it. Felt like sports were kind of back for a minute, especially for those of us that didn't have the opportunity to grow up watching MJ. You know, I was born in 96. One <laughs> was year he old. retired at that point? No, 96, I, I, 96 was uh, ring number five. And then this documentary is taking okay. place 97, 98. And so uh, I was a one-year-old. Yeah. Didn't get to uh, experience that, at least not in a way that I well, remember. The other thing that is... I think interesting in terms of what you said there, Doug, is this idea that there's a lot going on, even though their sports aren't happening. I think that whenever, you know, sports fans take a step back, you realize that in some ways sports are a lot like, and I'll make an analogy to the WWF or WWE. There's always a lot going on in sports outside of the actual games. It's mm-hmm. almost like, you know, this, this ecosystem that occurs on the periphery is kind of the hype machine. It's 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 also the hope machine, right? So it's like there's always. I, I, I truly wonder if you if you could do a research study and look at how much a sports fan spends watching games versus watching highlights, reading commentary, you know, watching Stephen A. Smith um, argue with Max Kellerman. You know, I, I wonder what the what the split would be because I, I suspect that. You know, probably more than half of the world of sports is stuff that happens outside the game. But but you know, going into uh, where you let in today, this signing of a high school prospect, the number I, I think in the in the notes you gave me, the G League has signed the number one player in the country and yeah, he, the number thirteen player in the country. Yeah, those those rankings are according to ESPN. I've seen uh, you know I've seen Jalen Green be ranked as low as number three. Um, and as high as number one. So regardless, he's he's a top three player, supposed to be a top five draft pick. And um, Isaiah Todd, the second, is somewhere between five and 15 as okay. far as where, where he stands in this class of high school basketball players. So pretty much a uh, one top five player or one top three player and one borderline top 10 player. Yeah, and so this is... Um, this is... Uh, Something that I think has been a long time coming. Now, one of the things where I think about sports is that, and it's kind of a a strange phrasing, right? It's that the rules of the game 
in terms of how the game operates. You know, not the rules of the game in terms of how play occurs on the field or in the arena, on the court, right. but how how the leagues, the teams, the the rules under which people operate. And I'll as a as a little bit of background on here. You know, my favorite sport for a long time has always been college basketball. And you know, maybe that has a function something to do with going to the University of Illinois during a final four run. But college basketball was always the game I loved the most. You know, kind of this the sense of renewal all the time, kind of the sense of community, part of the Illini nation. But I think, you know, when when you look at how the NBA operates and its relationship to the NCAA college basketball, this was really only a matter of time. It is sort of the logical progression in the past. And, you know, we, we started the Doug mentioned that he was born in, in 96. So Doug was born after, you know, Michael Jordan joined the Chicago Bulls. But, you know, if you, if you go way back in time to the, to the eighties and perhaps to the nineties, the environment was a little bit different in terms of college basketball and professional basketball, where by the time guys got to the league, to the NBA, they were really finished products or close to finished products, right? So they came to the league with big brand names, well-developed skill sets. And when teams were drafting, and sure, there's always going to be some misses, but when teams were drafting near the the top of the, of the, of the draft every June, they were getting something that they understood in terms of skills and potentially also as soon as they drafted a guy there'd be a rush on season tickets right mm-hmm. now now last year's nba draft was sort of equivalent right i mean so last year yeah. who was the number one pick doug you got zion williamson one and then uh john morant right after him yeah and and was zion sort of a? I mean i, I think there might have been a little bit of doubt in terms of his game translating to the nba doubt that was quickly resolved but he was was there any doubt doubt about his stardom no, Zion, among basketball fans, he was already a household name. And by the time he was in college, he was like LeBron James. He was the next big thing. You know, this could be yeah. the next Charles Barkley. Um, he, you know, he doesn't get the MJ comparison as much because he's a different type of player, different position. But he ha- has been looked at as a potential all-time great coming straight out of high school and straight out of college as well. Yeah, I like how you said that. You use, well, I would say, a brand name. You said a household name, but it's really, it's really the equivalent thing. He was, he was, he had star written all over him. Yeah, right? and I, I don't even have to look this up. I, you can almost guarantee that when he was drafted by the the Pelicans, that there was. Well, I mean, they knew they were going to draft him, so there was probably quite a bit of run up in terms of season ticket sales. Simply because people wanted to see this. You can also imagine that, you know, other teams raised their prices for when the Pelicans were going to visit their, when the Pelicans were going to visit their cities. So, you know, that used to be much more commonplace in terms of the relationship between NCAA basketball and the NBA. Now, and, and I think, and I'm probably guilty of this, I used to think that there was really a symbiotic relationship between the two organizations where the NBA needed the NCAA to create their next generation of talent and to create their next generation of stars. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, as we've shifted to this kind of new environment, and this new environment's been going on for, it's not really a new environment anymore, 15, 15 or so years, 
where it's high school kids and then one and done players coming into the league. This has fundamentally changed college basketball, where college basketball is almost a reset every year, right? There is no, oh my God, you know, what, what's Jordan and the Tar Heels going to do this year, right? It's, hey, have you heard about these these elite freshmen that are going to Kentucky? What are they going to do, right? Yeah. So th- there's this kind of l- much less knowledge uh, about who these guys are. Yeah, and it, it feels like by the time you get to know a team and get to know its players, uh, they're gone. So usually the the stories really become national stories in the NCAA tournament. And that's right toward the end of the tenure of of most of the best players in the country. Um, And so there's there's not a lot of that continuity in college basketball that we have in professional sports and even in college football. And I I think that's another key part of this. So the fact that these best players leave after every season, which means that the level of competition in the NCAA – has had to have gone down over over time, right? So rather than, you know, competing against 22-year-old men, the NCAA tournament is this kind of strange competition between 18-year-old phenoms and 22-year-old men at second, uh, you know, I don't want to say, I don't want to be degrading in any way, but at sort of lower level, non-blue blood programs. Right. Now, th- this is an important part of the story too, because this creates more uncertainty for these NBA teams, right? Because now you're you're essentially looking at 18-year-olds playing against 18-year-olds instead of 22-year-olds versus 22-year-olds. And so there's sort of two things that have happened that neither which works out in the NBA's favor is that, you know, there's less brand name development on the part of players in their one year of college. And it's a little less clear how guys are going to translate to the next game, to the next level up because of who they're playing against. Right. So, so lo and behold, then how about the G league? The G league is sort of the perfect opportunity. Now the G league, and I think the G league plays some games on ESPN that that package can improve. Now the NBA is going to be in a position where they have more control over the development of their next wave of talent, right? So you're going to come into the G League as a high-profile high school star. Um, I, I think the number we we talked about or we saw in the press was half a million dollars for the kid that was number one and about a quarter of a million dollars for the mm-hmm. kid that was ranked about 10. Mm-hmm. So these kids now are going to get, well, they're going to get a different kind of coaching. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. How long is the G League season? Do you know, Doug? Uh, it's 50 games per season. Okay. But but so they're going to, you know, but they're going to be playing against guys that have been, you know, 25-year-old guys looking for another another shot at the league. Um, potentially going to be playing against a higher level of competition. But I think more importantly, now the NBA is going to get a chance for a relatively minor investment, right, of a half million dollars for the number one kid to really decide very early on how to market this player. The other thing that this opens up to, and, you know, the NCAA was going in this direction as well, is that, you know, the number one player coming in, well, he can sign a shoe contract as well, right? So he can instantly become this you know, they can start to play around with and develop the marketing in a way that was going to be impossible when the kid was playing at a Duke or a Kentucky. So it, it, it's it's not um, it's not ideal if you're a college basketball fan. I, I tend to look at this as going, 
ooh, this is going to hurt that. This is going to hurt that game, right? Mm-hmm. Because the the kids that this is going to appeal to are the kids that were likely going to go to the college basketball for one season and then try to go to the pros. So you may be essentially skimming off the star power that was going into the NCAA basketball essentially permanently. Yeah, part of the allure of college basketball, and you think about when Zion Williamson was at Duke, is thinking even though it's like a minor league, these may be some of the best players in the world as far as the top tier, the Zion Williamson's. And it's very entertaining to watch them play college players and uh, see how they fare against people their own age, you know, more or less with the same amount of experience. Um, Now, you take that out. I've seen it argued. CBS Sports had an article arguing that college basketball isn't going to be hurt that bad. And they weren't looking at Zion. They were looking back to before the one and done era, 95 to 2005, when guys were going straight to the pros. You had guys like Kobe Bryant, Kevin Garnett, Tracy McGrady, skipping college altogether. And college basketball did fine. It's not like Kentucky wasn't filling up Rupp Arena during those years. Well, you know, can I I make a counterpoint to that? Absolutely. I I think sometimes what what folks don't get is, and so like like I said, I I like to think in terms of the rules of the game, in terms of how things are, the rules of the game, the incentives they provide to different entities and how that's going to play out over over the short and the long term. My concern, if I'm college basketball, is not so much that it's going to, you know, that's going to fall apart next year. Right. right. It, it's, the, it's the slow drip. Right. And so if the G League becomes a phenom and the NBA obviously has the marketing know-how to do that. Um, they've got a, a very willing partner in ESPN as well. That you could imagine the G League becomes this, you know, almost sort of the the younger brother to the NBA in terms of where the future stars are about to come from. Mm-hmm. Versus, and so now you've got the NBA marketing machine versus the Duke or Kentucky marketing machine. Right. And yeah, I mean, the, the, both both sides have some advantages in this, right? I mean. You, and what you're saying, you know, they're filling up Rupp Arena, right? It's like you've got this Kentucky basketball nation. I mean, you got this massive alumni base and this massive fan base that is really bought in. They're part of that. They're part of that team in a way, right? As the it, their loyalty is off the charts. But how does that then compare to a professional sports league's hype machine in the long term? And especially when you know the key thing is that does all the talent move to the G League, mm-hmm. right? And so it's like, does the NCAA become a clearly inferior product versus this G League competitor? Now, back in the day when Kobe and Garnett were going straight to the pros, it wasn't a competition, right? It was still yeah. kind of level one and, and level two. Mm-hmm. But 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 we, but we will we will see, right? Yeah, time will tell. I mean, I've seen the argument that. Guys like Ja Morant and this year Obi Toppin um, at Dayton and someone like Steph Curry at Davidson are always going to be in the mix in college basketball. There's always those guys that aren't the top 10 player that turn out to be all-time greats. And so college basketball is always going to have talent and and some kind of draw, especially with the loyalty they have from fans. Um, I think the question to me is, does this take enough value in time away from college basketball to incentivize them 
to start paying athletes because yeah, they're losing some. Are they losing enough to give up their free labor force? Yeah, I, and I, I I would put something else onto that. It's almost like where does the glamour go? You know, mm-hmm. can college basketball still keep the glamour, or does the glamour go to the go to the G League? Um, and and part of me wonders, you know, how much uh, how much does the NBA how much does the NBA value their NCAA partner, right? And, and so it's like, you know, because I suspect, especially in terms of how they describe the situation, they don't want the G League to be viewed as a competitor to college basketball. But depending on what they do in terms of their actions, it could very well, it could very well become that. I mean, you almost imagine some scenario where, you know, the G League is all you know, their massive social media kind of shoe pushes this kind of next generation stardom versus like almost the old tradition of the college basketball. And look, as a marketer, I love it. I love to see how that plays out. I'll also say this as uh, you know, you're, you're a university of Georgia guy. I'm a university of Illinois guy uh, in terms of the basketball universes. I think, you know, Illinois has more of a more of a history, but the last few years have not been kind. You know, I, I, I kind of eagerly await to see how, let's say, sort of the 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 good schools, but not the elite kind of blue blood schools, mm-hmm. might respond to uh, the let's say the elite talent going to um, going to the uh, the G League, and then having the competition be between you know these guys ranked let's say twenty to twenty to a hundred. Mm-hmm. There yeah. could be a great leveling. Yeah, and I would argue that it's already helped teams like, if you look at the University of Virginia, our most recent national champion, they're not getting top 10 players every every class in high school, but they have that continuity. And when they're competing against schools like North Carolina and Duke um, that are always composed of mostly freshmen, sometimes that continuity helps the less talented right. team and ultimately last year led to a national championship for Virginia. Now, on the flip side of everything, could this be a good thing for college basketball to actually have more of the one-and-done guys not in college basketball and more of the college basketball guys sticking around for three or four years? Yeah, it really, really depends. And that that's a question about the let's, that goes to the heart of the fundamental nature of fandom. Uh, so on, on some level, you know, getting that continuity, having guys stick around for four years— you know, three or four years, you can imagine that 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 could provide some real advantages towards, you know, having the fans be able to build these relationships, having this kid be part of, you know, because if a kid jumps, jumps in for one year, they're almost more like a mercenary versus if they play four years and they're really part of the Illini, either the Gator or the Dog Nation, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I could see it playing through. There, There is a little bit of hope here. On the other side of it, Americans in general don't like to root for second level competition. Sure. Right. That in general, we want to root for the best with the only difference being that, you know, college seems to be acceptable because it's almost like an age based division. So these are the best college guys. And then we have the best, best professionals. Yeah. And with college, a lot of times it's, uh, they, they sometimes are the best. Like I remember being at Georgia watching Todd Gurley and thinking he might be the best running back in the NFL if he were in the NFL right now. Yeah. And Zion was the same way in uh, in college basketball. 
And I think that that kind of hits to the to the crux of it, right? So now right. does the G League kind of remove that? Um, the other big story, Doug, I think, and we've we've talked a little bit about this, and I think we'll talk more about it going forward as we see the episodes uh, being released. And this is kind of great, right? That maybe mm-hmm. the biggest story in sports right now is a documentary series on ESPN. What's that called? It's called The Last Dance. And what's it about? I'll, I'll, I'll ask you questions because I, I lived it while you're sort of uh, watching it. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're watching so, the film version. The Last Dance essentially follows um, Phil Jackson and Michael Jordan's last season for the Bulls together with, with their dynasty team. Um, essentially, you know, management made it clear that Phil Jackson had one year left. He titled the season the last dance and he got his guys together, you know, Jordan Pippen. We haven't in the documentary gotten to Dennis Rodman yet, um, but Steve Kerr and, and the rest of that team. And they essentially had one last shot to do something special and we're going all in. They allowed a film crew to essentially document the entire thing. And that's where this documentary is coming from. It greatly centers around Michael Jordan as does pretty much everything in basketball. <laughs> Okay, and so this this highlights something that I think is a key element of fandom that people and it, it it's the key element of fandom that unifies the stuff that happens on the field versus the business side of it, and mm-hmm. that's this notion of stories or narratives, depending on you know whichever word you want to use. And so I was coming of age, finishing college in '89. Really, as the Jordan-led Bulls were going on their their first run, mm-hmm. you know, the, you could tell that, or at least it had that feeling. And you know, you, bias of hindsight, I don't know that you were seeing something special, right? And, and the way it played out, you know, forty years later or thirty years later. It was something special, right? It's like the the Michael Jordan story was something that we were all eagerly watching. I, I think with some of the vocabulary that people used to talk about Jordan, it's really kind of interesting because it's like this this notion of kind of the the stories, what he accomplished on the court, you know, the, the comebacks, the you know, the shot over Craig Elo, the championship runs. It's like these collections of stories that turn this guy into, and sports fans use this term a lot, that turn these guys into legends. And I don't know, is there any greater legend in sports than than Michael Jordan? No. Um, for someone my age, I would even say like he's like a mythological figure um, because I didn't grow up watching him play, and yet... He's the standard that no one can really reach. Um, and it's almost unfair to the Kobe Bryant and LeBron James of the world because you're not going to be a mythological figure when you're in the present. People are watching you and, and seeing your flaws. But Jordan is kind of, and I remember playing with him on NBA 2K for the first time. And I don't think he missed a shot for like the entire <laughs> game I was playing. Um, but it's like he's this perfect basketball yeah. player to my generation. And it's because of that narrative that's been told and the brand that they've created around Michael Jordan as, I mean, I mean, clearly has probably the strongest argument for the greatest basketball player of all time. Um, but well, there's know, a lot that's that, gone that, into that too, off the court. 
That's a good point, and and the, the fact is that the, these things almost these things almost go together, right? I mean, so the the greatest basketball player of all time, mm-hmm. and again, you know, I I think just about every generation would want to argue that, right? That their that their standard bearer was the the greatest of all time. Yeah. But the thing that I think that adds to the Michael Jordan uh, piece of it, and it's like you know these things are obviously related. You mentioned the branding, right? That so Jordan is still one of the most popular, if not the most popular shoe that Nike sells. Uh, I remember back in the day, it was really kind of a, and I don't think it was fully appreciated what was happening. But Jordan also really changed sports marketing and sports branding, where you know guys used to have endorsements but look i hey i'm a chicago guy you can go back and watch the super bowl shuffle and walter payton is wearing a kangaroos headband in that and, and for some of the folks and maybe for for you doug you're going what kangaroos you know what what is that but walter payton's shoe deal was with a company whose innovation was essentially kind of these velcro closures kangaroos or ruse you fast forward just a few years later to Michael Jordan, and he's got McDonald's, Hanes, Ballpark Frank, Gatorade, Nike. And so he took this kind of sports stardom and turned it into being the premier marketing spokesperson. And so you can't you can't underestimate how important that is in terms of his impact on the culture. And it's like his marketing success magnifies his athletic success. And you've got like the, the original goat, right? Right. He's the goat. Yeah. He's the goat. And and even this, um, it's kind of a, an interesting thing to watch play out this, this documentary, he gets the documentary, right? Because he's such a transcendent figure and it contributes to that. Right. And this documentary makes it even more so. Yeah, it's a cycle. Um, one thing that was interesting to me in the narrative is the villain, at least in the first episode of the whole thing, was really within the Bulls organization, and that was Jerry Krause. And kind of felt like they were spitting on his grave a little bit because this is someone that died two years ago. But <laughs> Krause was kind of the manager that that wanted the credit that Jordan and Pippen and Coach Phil Jackson were getting he had that organizations win championships quote that rubbed some of the players the wrong way and ended up having beef with both Pippen and MJ. MJ was pretty much, I mean, there's video of MJ mocking him to his face. You know, allegedly Pippen was doing the same thing on the bus, going to games and things of that nature. And it's interesting to me how someone like Jerry Krause had more power than a Michael Jordan or than a Phil Jackson within the Bulls organization and, and how that was even allowed to happen in a, in a world where Jordan was running the world essentially. And, and Jackson is, you know, on his way to his sixth ring. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, more power than Jordan. Uh, that, that That's a tough one to me, but what I love about what you just said is this uh, again is sort of a nice part of these kind of sports narratives, right? And, mm-hmm. and it's one of the things that really should be emphasized when we think about the nature of fandom, because it a lot of it boils down to the nature of storytelling, right? And so th- this is almost like going back to you know a high school English class where your teacher's sort of telling you how a how a, how a famous novel works, and you've got the protagonist, and you also have the uh, well, essentially, you got the hero and you got the villain, right? right? And so you know the the Michael Jordan story, uh, 
And we'll see where the documentary goes. You know, Jordan had all sorts of kind of uh, folks that he was uh, competing against. So mm-hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll call it rivals. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Craig Elo, I mentioned, you know, he... You know, he was he seemed to be in half of the the shots of Jordan dunking or, or scoring over someone. Uh obviously a lot of stuff with Isaiah Thomas of the Pistons. Detroit Pistons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, even Rodman was kind of a villain in the Michael Jordan story when he was at Detroit. And so, you know, you add to it and, and you wonder how much of this is let's say storytelling or cinematic license in terms of Jerry Krause, but God, it makes for a great story, doesn't it? it in terms does. of just it just enhances the the legend of Michael Jordan. Yeah, it does. And I think that, you know, that's part of narrative. And I think there has to be an obstacle to overcome. And for the Bulls, they were so dominant that from a documentary standpoint, you're looking at a team that's won, what, five of the last seven NBA finals. And, you know, you have to make it feel like the odds are stacked against them somehow. Right. And right. So, yeah, that, that's kind of perfect, right? Yeah. Even though you're the best in the world, you've got to figure out someone that you've got a grudge against that you're overcoming. Right. And and so I think Jerry Krause was kind of the, the fall guy for that because, you know, what they didn't mention was that he was a two-time NBA exec of the year and had put together a lot of the pieces of that team. And I'm not saying I'm a, a fan of everything that he did, but... You know, it was definitely framed in a way where, where he was more of a villain. And I think that goes hand in hand with what you're saying about narrative in sports. Well, you know, I, I eagerly await the Tom Brady story in 2030 with the villain Bill Belichick, right? I mean, you know, we, I mean, we can almost predict these things coming up. Yeah. And, going, and we've heard forward. kind of murmurs of that type thing the last couple of years yeah. within the Patriots organization. Okay, so why don't we why don't we wrap here uh, just as a little bit of preview for those of you uh, listening? Uh, this is going to be a busy week for busy week for content uh, for the show. Yeah, we will drop one more episode probably. Uh, what are we going to shoot for Thursday morning? Yeah, right? I would shoot for Thursday because uh, the draft's Thursday night. Okay, and so like I said, you know, even though they're not playing the games, there's a lot of sports content um, from from leagues sort of repositioning in terms of how they're interacting, the NCAA and uh, the the NBA with the, with the G League movement. Uh, we've got sports storytelling and brand building in terms of this Michael Jordan documentary, mm-hmm. and the NFL draft is always one of my favorite events of the year because. Uh, and, and whenever I think about the NFL draft, I think of one word, and that word is hope. And so, even if you you know your team's been awful, the NFL has been a master at you know doing stuff in the off season, free agency, and the big one, of course, is the NFL draft, where it gives you this. Uh, the shot in the arm of, oh my God, you know, my team has just drafted three future pro bowlers. And even though we were, uh, we won three games last year, we're going to the playoffs kind of feeling. Um, so we'll, we'll look forward to that. Uh, talk to you guys again in a couple of days. Yeah. Looking forward to Thursday. Thank y'all for listening.